This message was presented at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All your heads together with me. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of your presence and for the power of your word. Now we ask that you would be with us as we spend time together considering eternal things. It is our prayer that we would leave different than we entered. In Jesus' name, amen. I bring you greetings from the Cherry Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church in Garden City, Michigan, and the Detroit Northwest Seventh-day Adventist Church in Detroit, Michigan. I'm grateful that our congregations have allowed us to come here and to spend time together with you and share. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, beginning with verse 6, the Bible says, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel. Verse 7, And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost Part of the earth, or as the theme is, to the ends of the earth. The first thing that jumps into my mind is found in verse 6. The Bible tells us that when they were come together, they asked him, and in the original language, they did not merely ask one time, but they persistently pressed Jesus. So they asked over and over and over again. It's like one of my children, when I've told them that I'm going to do something for them, they will never let me forget. They press over and over and over again. But it is not this pressing so much as it is what the disciples ask that is at the very least puzzling to me. Lord, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? If you're familiar with Jesus' teachings on the kingdom, which all of us should be to some degree, Jesus had much to say about the kingdom, but actually he said very little about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. In his parables, you will read about the kingdom being removed or taken away from Israel and given to another nation, bringing forth fruits. And so my question is, where does the disciples' question come from? Beloved, I believe that it came from the theological interpretations of the Pharisees. Now, the reason why this is troubling to me is because the crucified and resurrected and glorified Savior was standing right there 
in front of the disciples. They had spent the last 40 days with their master. And beloved, Jesus was not enough. What did I say? I heard three people here on the front row. Jesus was not enough. What did I say? Please imagine with me that the man that you have seen raise the dead and feed 5,000 on one occasion and 4,000 on another occasion, and that's not even counting the women and children. A man that you have seen calm stormy seas, a man that you have seen cast demons out of countless individuals. And then imagine with me that you see this same man hanging on a cross. Your hopes in him as the Messiah are dashed, destroyed. And then you see him after he has risen. Imagine that you're inside of a house for fear of what the Jews are going to do to you. And this same Jesus walks through the wall, comes into the midst, approaches Thomas and says, touch me, touch me. And then imagine that you and Jesus spend 40 days together. And at the end of this, the only thing on your lips is a twisted theological interpretation. When will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Not Jesus, how many more people are going to be resurrected? Not Jesus, what grand things do you have in store for us? But when will you restore the kingdom to Israel? It makes me wonder tonight for how many of us is Jesus not enough? How many of us need a new car? How many of us need another degree? How many of us need a better relationship? How many of us need to make more money? How many of us need something else other than Jesus? The disciples asked this ridiculous question, but Jesus in his manifold wisdom does not directly address the question. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witness un witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. This is a wonderful promise and we've heard a little bit about it today. Your theme takes the end of verse 8 and seeks to focus our minds on that. But I want to take your minds away from the ends of the earth. And I want to take your minds to the beginning. Jesus tells them to go to Jerusalem. He tells them to go where? Now, I don't know if you're awake this evening. But if you're like me and I'm one of the disciples, I'm like, uh, what, Jesus? You want us to go where? After all, it was in Jerusalem that Jesus had been, yeah. In the 11th chapter of John's gospel, the Bible tells us how Jesus' apostles felt about Jerusalem when Jesus said, let us go into Judea because he wanted to resurrect Lazarus. They said, well, yeah, come on, let's go so we can die like him. 
This was not a place that any one of Jesus' followers would covet going, and yet it is the very first place that Jesus commanded that his disciples must go. I would submit to you this evening that Jesus was borrowing from a principle or an idea that is in Scripture. Again, if I'm one of the disciples, I don't want to go to Jerusalem because they've crucified Jesus. Not only have they crucified Jesus, but they've already heard Jesus preaching. They've seen Jesus perform miracles. Humanly speaking, one would conclude it would be a waste of time to go and take the gospel message to those who have apparently already heard. If there were classes of people who were deserving to receive the gospel, I believe that those in Jerusalem would probably be considered amongst the most undeserving. And yet Jesus said, before you reach the ends of the earth, you must first go to Jerusalem. What is this principle that we suggested? Turn with me to Micah chapter 6. It was our scripture reading this evening. Micah chapter 6. People have composed beautiful music, beautiful songs about these verses, but tonight we will try to extract something that helps us understand Jesus' command in the first chapter of Acts. Hear ye now what the Lord says, Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Whenever God has a problem with his people and they're not listening, God calls nature to witness against his people. Verse 2, hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto you? And wherein have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of servants. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. Now here's where it gets interesting. Verse 6, Israel personified is responding to God's accusations. And I want you to notice the tenor of their response. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with ten thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So God says, I've got a controversy with my people. And Israel's response is, well, what do you want from us? What do you want? Do you want thousands of burnt offerings? Do you want thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil? 
Those things are all in reference to the sacrificial or the ceremonial services. Do you want us to just keep going through a round of religious practices? Is that what you want, God? More churches? More grand events like this one? More seminars? More explanations on how we are to do this and how we are to do that? Is that what you desire? And then Israel goes a step further and suggests that God is unfair in what he desires. Beyond the religious rituals, do you want me to give the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Are you asking me for that which it is uncharacteristic of you to request, illogical of you to request? God, what is it that you want from me? I imagine that there are some of you who are listening to this right now who have asked yourselves the very same question. God, I go to church every week. God, I try to study my Bible. I try to spend time with you, but it seems like things are just not clicking. What else do you want from me? I've sacrificed and I've given up music and I've given up the partying scene and I've tried to get away from the old life, but what else is it that you desire? Listen to God's response. Verse 8. What does it say? You probably can quote it. He hath, he hath showed thee, O man, what is? And what doth the? Now the interesting thing is, if you're like me, I'm looking at that and I'm saying to myself, okay, God has shown them what it is that is good and what he requires of them. So they already know. They already what? They already know. But if you're like me, I didn't know. Here's the punchline, if you will. Israel had been shown what God required of them based on his treatment of Israel. Let me say that again. Israel had been showed or shown what God required of them based on his treatment of Israel. Listen to this. Verse 4. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you out of the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. God is saying, I have liberated you. I have what? I have liberated you, and I also gave you guidance and leadership. I gave you what? I liberated you. I provided guidance and leadership for you. Verse 5, remember now what Balaam king of Moab consulted and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him. Now listen, let me, you guys remember this. This is from the book of Numbers, right? Did Israel know what Balaam and Balak were doing on the mountain. Did Israel know that an attempt was being made to curse the entire nation? Come on, yes or no? Listen to me, friends. God was saying, I protected you from dangers that you did not even know existed. 
I protected and I preserved you. I caused blessings to come from your enemies and you didn't even know it. And so this, beloved, is the foundation for why God says, I have shown you what is good and I have shown you what I require of you. Listen to what he says in the end portion of verse 8, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God, to do justly. That is, to do what is right, to do what is right, and to love mercy, and then to walk in humility. We should love mercy. Israel was being encouraged to love mercy because God had been merciful to them. Israel was being encouraged to do what was right because God had done right by Israel. Israel was being encouraged to walk in humility because the blessings that they enjoyed were not because they had been faithful to God, but because God had been faithful to them. And so God says this, beloved, I want you to treat others the way that I have treated you. Did you get that or did you miss it? I want you to treat others the way I have treated you. But what if they're undeserving? Well, guess what? You're undeserving too. This principle, dear friends, I believe is what Jesus, what Jesus concentrates in the first chapter of Acts. It's the reason why Jesus told the disciples that they must first go to Jerusalem. It was the most hazardous mission that they could undertake to the most undeserving group of people on the face of planet earth, and yet Jesus says you must start there. Now let me ask you, did the disciples stick close to Jesus' side when he was going through his passion? You know, I, I had a friend when I was young, about 15 or 16, and I remember my brother and I, we, we got into a fight. We got jumped, and uh, it was three of us walking down the street. And uh, this brother was raptured away instantly when the fight broke out. And two hours later, he reappeared. And I'm like, man, what happened? Oh, man, I read and I thought y'all was running too. <laughs> Bible says that one of Jesus's followers ran so fast that the brother ran up out of his clothes. Now, I know some of you are fasting here tonight, but you ain't that fast. His brother ran up out of his clothes. The disciples, my point is this, the disciples were undeserving of the mercies of God because they had forsaken Jesus at the time when he needed them most, and yet he had extended mercy to them. And now Jesus says, 
I want you to go and extend mercy to the undeserving, just as I have extended mercy to you. Let me ask you a question tonight. Who do you think is undeserving of the gospel? Let me ask it another way. Who are you least inclined to share the gospel with? Hmm? I want you to think about that. Somebody alluded to it earlier today in one of the presentations. I like the fact that Jerusalem was a city. Jerusalem was a what? Now, I know as all good Seventh-day Adventists, we're trying to make our way to the hills and get away from the cities so we can prepare to be translated to heaven without seeing death. But I just want to put this in your ear tonight. There is work to be done in the cities. And I know some of us talk about being afraid of going to the cities. I didn't hear no amens on that. I know some of us talk about being afraid of going into the cities because, oh, all the crime and all the violence. I heard that about Detroit. But they pack out Ford Field with 80,000 people all the time. They pack out Tigers, not Tiger Stadium, but Comerica Park. All the folks going down to see the baseball game. And they pack out the hockey arenas. And people tend to go to the cities for what they want to go to the cities for. And I'm not just talking about worldly folks. I'm talking about us too. We'll come to the city for GYC. But we won't go to labor amongst those who are needy in the cities. And yet what we're reading tonight from God's Word is God says, have I extended mercy to you? Yes. Then I expect you to extend mercy even to those that you may deem to be undeserving. Well, Lord, I'm afraid of what's going to happen if I go into the cities. Let me tell you, I used to for uh, many years, like many of you, or some of you anyway, go door to door canvassing. And I led programs, big booked and all of that stuff. And you know what they would tell us when we would go door to door? And you know, you don't know the people that were telling me this, so don't think anything. They would tell us there are certain communities that you want to look for. Don't say amen too loud. Young families with young families with kids. These are the communities that we want to target. And when we conduct our evangelistic crusades, listen to me, beloved, who are we expecting to get? If you're honest with yourselves, you want nicely dressed professionals who have well-mannered families who have good jobs to join your church. I heard one amen. We want people who are as close to us as they possibly can be to come and join our churches. And we are uncomfortable when people don't look like us. We are uncomfortable when we smell them. 
We're uncomfortable when their coming means that our church is going to have to expend more of its budget in order to bless and care for them. You mean we spent all this money on evangelism and now we're going to have to keep spending? I thought we were trying to get good. And yet Jesus says, you didn't deserve my mercy or my grace. And so I am imploring you to extend my mercy and my grace to others just as I have extended it to you. In fact, beloved, let me say this. The love and mercy of God ought to change us. It ought to change us at our very core so that we are willing to go first to the people and the places that are most undeserving or that we deem as most undeserving, the people and places that we are most uncomfortable going to. If you only want people who look like you and who are in the same socioeconomic bracket as you are, what gospel are you talking about? What message are you taking? If I read my Bible correctly, Jesus went to the sick, diseased, and the outcast of society first. The most undeserving. Why? because they were the most likely to accept his message and be transformed by it. But you and I want folks who are ready-made Christians. Let me tell you, we had a precious sister. We had outside service at the uh, Cherry Hill Church. Precious sister. She was dro drove up and down the street five times. She ended up coming in and she said she wanted to bring her whole family. We said, sure, come on in. And so she, she came with her family, precious family, beautiful family, five children. Two of her children were autistic. And this made our church uncomfortable. Now, we, here we are praying that the Lord brings souls. Then he brings some. And we're like, oh, But here's what it forced us to do, and I praise God for my saints at Cherry Hill. We decided to get together and pray and say, God has sent us these precious souls, and we need to be equipped so that we can minister to them. And so we had a whole big thing and uh, had folks from the Autism Alliance come in and tell us how we could better equip our church. Here's the thing we learned. Our Sabbath school was set up for our children and our grandchildren, but it wasn't set up for autistic children. Now, as I'm listening to this presentation that these folks from the Autism Alliance are sharing, it begins to settle in on my mind. Hey, it's not just our Sabbath school program. Our entire church service is set up for our own comfort. And just like an autistic child could come into a Sabbath school room and be completely out of place, and we don't even understand why, and it means that we must invest and take the time to get to know that child so that we can minister to them in a relevant way. Likewise, it's not just with autistic children, but it's with everybody, beloved.
before you go to the ends of the earth. First, start in the most undesirable place. 1997, I was supposed to go to Korea to teach English. The plans fell through. I was reading somewhere in the spirit of prophecy, and this powerful quotation came, and it said, it said that those who seek to be missionaries in a foreign land must first learn to become missionaries in their own homes. In their own homes. Lord, have mercy. It ain't easy at home, is it? Because folks know you. No matter how high you were walking at GYC, they like, I'm going to give it a week. See if you ain't back to doing the same old foolishness you was doing before you went. And it's uncomfortable when people want to test the validity of our experience, isn't it? Don't we just want people to accept that we've changed and we're new? But the people in our homes are like, mm-hmm, let's see how long it's going to last this time. Because they've been on that rodeo before. Oh, my heart was touched. Uh-huh. Let's see if you're going to continue to be patient. Let's see if you're going to continue to walk with humility. And beloved, here it is. Jesus wants us to begin. He wants us to what? He wants us to begin in the most difficult places. I was in Tennessee, and uh, a <laughs> pastor by the name of George Sharp came and visited me. I was a boys' dean at Laurel Brook Academy, and he came and sat me down. He said, Steve, listen, I think that God has placed his hand on you for pastoral ministry. Have you ever considered that? I'm like, no, not really. And this silver-haired, wise man laid a burden on me for over an hour. And beloved, I came face to face with this reality, that I had surrendered to the Lord Jesus, but I had told him two things. <laughs> I said, Lord, I don't want to be a pastor. I'll do anything, but I ain't about to be no pastor. Lord, I'll go anywhere jungles, desert, but don't send me back to Cleveland. That's why I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm like, no, 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 Lord, literally, Lord, you can send me anywhere except for home. And Lord, I'll do anything except for pastor. And at the end of that conversation, and I've been walking with the Lord for about five or six years at this point, at the end of that conversation, I realized that I had never truly surrendered to God. Now, let me rephrase that. I realized that my surrender was not thorough. I had indeed surrendered, but it was not thorough because I was withholding things. There were places I did not, or a place, excuse me, singular, a place I did not want to go. And there was a task that I had no interest in fulfilling. Beloved, we read Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and we think, ye shall receive power, and that's where we focus. But you got to understand, folks, the disciples were not thinking about the power. They were thinking about where Jesus was telling them to go. Jerusalem, 
they would have preferred to go to the ends of the earth, but not Jerusalem. But that's precisely where Jesus sent them. Why? Because there would be no greater evidence that their hearts had been transformed by the love of God than for those men to go to Jerusalem and labor intensely and passionately for the same people who had not only crucified Jesus, listen to me, beloved, but who had seen their cowardice. The same people who had witnessed as they abandoned their master. Jesus said, I want you to start right there. I want to ask you something this evening. Have you been changed by the mercy and grace that God has extended to you? Have you truly been transformed? I'm going to suggest tonight that perhaps you have been, but like me in Tennessee, you need a more thorough transformation. Last year I was reading a book because I wanted to become a better father, specifically for my daughters. Wonderful book called Strong Father, Strong Daughters. And as I was reading this book, I came across a story about a father and his daughter. Christian family raising their children all to love and serve God. And then their oldest daughter decides to go into the parents' room and steal some precious things and money from the parents and takes off. Not a word to the parents about where she's going, why she's taken off. In fact, the mother and father hired a private investigator to find out where their daughter was. They lived in Michigan and their daughter was tracked down all the way out in California. The father jumped on an airplane and he caught a flight out to California. His daughter was working in a convenience store and so for about an hour and a half the father comes and he just looks at his daughter doesn't say anything, just looks at her. He hadn't seen her in months. The daughter turns around. You know how you can tell when somebody's been staring at you for a long time? She turns around and sees her father. And when her break comes, she comes out to speak with her dad. Instead of receiving a warm embrace, she cusses her father out tells him that it's your fault that I'm here. It's your fault that I left home. Now, I don't know what home you grew up in, but the home I grew up in, you don't do that. You might lose some teeth or need some dental work or something like that. Lambasted him. Refused to talk to him anymore. The father hopped on a plane and went back home by himself, heartbroken. Six months later, the father comes back. Maybe she's had a change of heart. 
He goes to the convenience store. He doesn't see his daughter. He asks around. She doesn't work here anymore. The father begins to search around the homeless shelters of the city seeking to find his girl. He finds her up under a bridge. Her clothes are dirty. She is emaciated. He suspects that she's on drugs, maybe even prostituting herself to get the drugs. He bursts into tears and he runs to his girl, but there's still this coldness. He takes her to a store, buys her some clothes, asks her what's going on. She refuses to share anything. He discovers that she's been staying with a man who is twice her age. He pleads with his daughter, please come home. No. The father returns, goes home. All this time, the father has a ritual. He is writing letters to his daughter on a weekly basis. And he's putting the letters away. Listen to me, beloved. He's putting the letters away, hoping that when she comes home, if she comes home, he'll give the letters to her. Not only is he writing letters, but unbeknownst even to his wife, he's taking a small sum of money and setting it aside in a special account for his daughter. One day, the father is at work. And his phone is just ringing and ringing and ringing. He's in a meeting and he steps out and, hello? There's no sound on the other end of the line. Hello? Sweetheart, is that you? Is that you? He hears his daughter's sobs on the other end of the line. Where are you? Tell me where you are and I will come and get you right now. She said, I'm in a bus station in Grand Rapids. The father hung up the phone. He jumped in his vehicle, told everybody he would be back tomorrow. He drove to that bus station, picked up his little girl and brought her home. I've got to confess to you tonight. When I read that story, I put myself in that father's place. And I said, I don't know if I could love my daughter like that after she has treated me like that. One reality settled in on my mind, actually two. The first reality was this, Stephen, you don't really know what love is yet. Because your love, even for your precious children, has not been tested like that yet. The second reality that settled in on my mind is this, Stephen, why would you be unwilling to love your own children that way when that's how I've loved you? That's how I've loved you. That's what you've done to me. That's how you've exasperated my love. That's how you've resisted and refused my love. But Stephen, I've been writing love letters to you. I've been storing away the blessings for you when you come back. And Stephen, I don't just want you to come back, but I want you to go and get others too. Go get someone else who is exasperated 
your patience and your love like you have exasperated mine. Go get them. As this special music is shared with you, I want you to think about the love of God and whether you need a more thorough experience with that love. And I'm going to ask you to do something after this special music is shared. Life was formed in your hands. You alone tell my story. All my hours like sand, I surrender all. thing I want to ask you is this. If you, like me, can acknowledge that you need a deeper revelation of God's love because there are places that you don't want to go and people that you are uncomfortable ministering to, but you understand that if God has loved me, then it means that I've got to love others and I've got to extend the same mercy and grace that's been extended to me. That's appeal number one. If you feel that you need a deeper revelation of God's love. My second appeal is this. If there are people in your life that you have not found the grace to be able to forgive and it is stunting your spiritual growth, it is keeping you from experiencing fullness of joy. It's keeping you from experiencing rest and peace. And you want to say, Lord, transform me by your grace and your love. 
so that I'm able to extend that grace and love to these particular people in my life. Two simple things. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. I'm not going to ask you to come forward tonight. I want you to simply talk with God. Lord, help me. Help me. There are people I don't love like you do. There are places that I'm unwilling to go. The ends of the earth sounds better to me than going to these places. And yet, just like Jesus' command to the disciples, before I can reach the end of the earth, I must first reach the end of myself. So, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. I'll give you a minute. Just talk to the Lord. Loving Father, tonight we just want to say thank you. Thank you for liberating us. Thank you for giving us guidance. Thank you for protecting us when we didn't know we needed to be protected. Just like you said to ancient Israel, tonight you have also shown us already what is good and what you require of us. It is a righteousness that reflects your righteousness. A righteousness that extends love and grace and mercy even to the undeserving. Father, if we don't have this resonating in our hearts, what we say with our lips does not matter. The soundness of our message is compromised if this is not residing in our hearts. Lord, tonight we want to be transformed by you and what you have done and are doing for us. Wrap your loving arms around each and every one of your precious children tonight. May your grace, richly and freely bestowed upon us, be uppermost in our thoughts on this night, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.